Well, this is strange, guys. Not gonna lie, uh, for the last year, I have had to make up stories in my head about how Jason and Jackson, our two volunteers who do the recording, need to hear each sermon I give. So in my mind, their lives are really jacked up, um, but I've done a lot of good in their hearts. And on that note, I actually do wanna shout out those two volunteers. They have been so faithful over the last year, recording, editing, doing slides. If you could give them a round of applause. It is probably the least exciting job he'll get at a church and they have done it so well. And with that, let's move in. So today we're kicking off week five of our Lent series, Open Your Eyes, where we've been exploring Jesus' seven woes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23. And specifically, we've been looking at how they provide this invitation to fast or to repent from a religious, religious hypocrisy, to open our eyes to where maybe we've missed the kingdom in our lives so we can embrace Jesus' vision of kingdom integrity on the other side of Easter, to learn to be people whose character, words, and deed overlap and intertwine. And I wanna start today with a story. Now I've shared in the past that I am a basketball junkie. Um, I, believe it or not, I actually used to be pretty good at basketball, which is crazy because of this, but I could get to the basket. I was hyper-athletic, I played great defense, at least until one faithful day in college. I had the ball and I went to take a hard first step to get to the hoop and I just stepped funny. See, what happened was I stepped on the side of my foot and the full force of that step came down and turned my ankle 90 degrees. I will remember for the rest of my life the pop. And then looking down and seeing that my leg was vertical, but the side of my foot stared right up at me. And I had this one infinitely long minute, second, with one clear thought. That's not right. <laughs> and then pain, agonizing pain. See, what happened, as it turns out, is that I tore the ligaments that connect my foot to my leg, separated the ankle essentially from my leg, possibly dislocated it. It was the worst injury I have ever had. And for some time, I was done playing basketball, believe it or not. Crutches, a brace, the whole deal. And when I finally could play again, I was amped, as you would be. I got my gear, I always had good gear. I liked looking like a basketball player. Um, I laced up and I was ready to ball out my triumphant return in my mind. And then reality hit me like a ton of bricks. You see, a few things became immediately clear. I think first and foremost, I couldn't move the same anymore. Side to side movement hurt. My first step, that force of pushing off was shot. It was all gone. My foot just felt like it was stuck in sand. Worse, things like quick twitch movement, being able to just jump, right? It was gone. See, things that I used to do without thinking about it suddenly took thought to get my foot to do any sort of hard movement. Rebounding, shot blocking, even a jump shot. Suddenly I had to think about instead of just actually naturally doing it. And that made me have to accept the reality. My ankle was simply not the same. It was just weaker. And no amount of willpower was going to change that. And that hurt. But you know what made it truly hard? It wasn't the physical damage. It was actually at first that I did not accept that reality. It was my internal world. I could not accept that something was wrong, that something had fundamentally broken. 
Instead, I insisted I was fine and kept trying to force myself to play the way I used to. And y'all, I truly sucked at basketball for the first time in my life. Ever seen an athlete that just loses their athleticism? Overnight, it suddenly they go from great to terrible? That was me. <laughs> you see, I just lost it. But I kept playing, and I hated it. I would get so mad, and people hated playing with me. Have you ever played sports with someone who tries to do things that they can't do, and they try to do too much, and then when they can't do them, they get frustrated and project all their frustration onto you, your teammate? Is that fun? Does anyone enjoy playing with that kind of a person? No, it was miserable. <laughs> it was not fun for anybody. I was miserable inside and out. And that's since changed, but I'm gonna come back to that later. You see, I wanna, for now, I wanna bring this up because it sets the course for our next two connected woes. These two woes that highlight one of the most important truths about spirituality, that life is fundamentally an inside job, that our internal world determines how we exist and engage the external world, not the other way around. And that may sound obvious, but this is something we get wrong so often in our practice of religion. I think a lot of us have an immense capacity to believe that our external circumstances, relationships, other people, that these things determine our internal state. We tell ourselves things like, I would be kind, joyful, content, grateful, good, if I could just change blank outside of myself, do we not? We have this capacity to think that we have to change everything and everyone else to fix us, which turns religion into something kind of gross. It turns it into a tool for trying to transform external circumstances and people according to what we want, for fixing everything and everyone else except us. Something that Jesus believes utterly misses the invitation and the purpose of spirituality in the kingdom of God. This is what we're gonna explore today. Now to get why, we pick up in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. We read that Jesus says, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, "'you hypocrites! "'You clean the outside of the cup and dish, "'but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. "'Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, "'and then the outside will also be clean. "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, "'you hypocrites! "'You are like whitewashed tombs with, "'which look beautiful on the outside, "'but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead "'and everything unclean.'" In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people who are righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So Jesus presents two, two illustrations. He calls Israel's religious leadership dirty dishes and pretty graves. Now, to understand both of these metaphors, we need to explore two terms that Jesus uses, clean and unclean. Now, in his Jewish context, these aren't terms that refer to being physically dirty. No, they're terms from the Old Testament related to God's holiness and how humans should interact with that holiness. You see, biblically, God is the sole creator of all life, which makes him holy, unique, set apart, and deserving of deep respect and reverence. 
And to show that, God's people were commanded to keep things antithesis to his nature from coming into contact with him, especially when they worshiped him in his temple, which they accomplished through something called ceremonial purity, distinguishing things as being either spiritually clean or unclean. Now, this is incredibly alien to us as 21st century Americans, and it's actually really complex. It would take multiple sermon series for me to walk through the nuance of this ritual purity. But for today, I want to lay out just some key points to help us understand these terms. First, clean and unclean were ceremonial statuses, either or propositions. They marked whether something should or shouldn't be brought into God's presence during religious ceremony. Most things were clean, but things associated with stuff like death, decay, disease, things that were antithesis to God's nature, they were labeled unclean. And they were believed that they shouldn't be brought before God. Does that show respect to bring death before God? The God of life? Come on, guys. Thank you. (laughs) No, unclean should not be brought before God. Second, uncleanness as a status was believed to be transferable onto people or spaces. Again, incredibly alien for us. But think of it like mud. You get outside, you play in mud, what happens? You get mud on you, right? You walk into your house, what happens? The house gets muddy. You give a hug to your unsuspecting friend, what happens to them? They get muddy. In an overly simplistic way, this was true for uncleanness. You touch something unclean like a dead body, you'd get death on you. And you'd get death become unclean. Third, because of this, becoming unclean was considered part of life. Things happen. People could get unclean. For example, Uncle Joe dies. Do you have to touch his dead body to move it? Or do you just leave it rotting in the living room? You got to touch a dead body (laughs) and you would become unclean. Things happen. However, choosing to then bring that uncleanness into contact with God or others, that was a moral issue in the Old Testament. Getting muddy happens, but tracking mud into someone's house, is that cool? No, it is not. Hugging them while you're muddy, is that cool? No, it is not. Same with waltzing into God's temple or into contact with other people when you have death all over you. That does not show respect to God and his children. This is how it worked. And finally, this leads us to our last point. Becoming unclean wasn't permanent. The Old Testament provided ritual washings and ceremonies to become ritually clean again. Cleaning up before entering God's presence or contacting others to show respect. And I bring all of this up today. It's important because the Pharisees were incredibly committed to remaining ceremonially clean. They created complex rules to avoid touching anything unclean and to maintain strict external purity, even to the point of having specific rules for how to wash utensils like bowls. And this is what Jesus is referencing. Jesus references such rules to make his point about spirituality, which is actually really intuitive when you think about it. Imagine you've got a bowl, right? You eat out of this bowl every single day. It's the only one you own. And after every meal, you extensively clean the outside, but not once in your life do you clean the inside of the bowl. What happens? Gross. Spotless looking on the outside, 
but inside you get a whole bunch of moldy food and maggots, right? And then you go back to eating out of it the next day. Gross, am I right? Exactly, but do you get his point? You see, which matters most for having a healthy, usable bowl for eating? Washing the inside, right? If you got that order wrong, wouldn't that be absurd? The same is true, according to Jesus, when we get the order of spirituality wrong. You perfect external aspects of religion without letting God heal your internal world, your attitudes, your heart, your thoughts, your worldview, your desires, which for Jesus is incredibly problematic because that's the source of everything. What we do flows out of who we are in Jesus' mind. Getting this backwards makes religion about superficial change without ever healing what actually matters, the heart that produces our actions. That remains broken, it remains filthy. Built up with moldy pride, greed, self-centeredness, judgmentalism, everything that's broken our world. We miss the purpose of spirituality. We forget that life is an inside job. And this sets up the sixth law, which highlights what this produces in our world when we get it wrong. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Now, again, to understand this image, two points. First, Jesus is in Jerusalem during Passover at this time in Matthew, a crucial holiday in the Jewish year. Israelites would flood into Jerusalem, quadrupling its population pretty much overnight for the entire week leading up to the holiday. Thus, there was a custom that you need to understand. Because the second point is that a proximity to a corpse was a major way to become unclean. And if you became unclean, you would miss the Passover festivities. So this custom was pretty simple to understand. It's what Jesus is referencing. Officials would go around the city and they would take white chalk and they would mark tombs that had dead bodies in it, which looked really pretty. But you get the more important point. It warned out-of-towners to stay away. Imagine, you don't know Jerusalem well, and you come across a tomb, and you have no idea if it's full of unclean bones or not. You don't know if you can get close to it, or if you're going to risk missing Passover by becoming ceremonial unclean. So they would mark them white to say, stay away, keep your distance. Don't come any closer. And Jesus says, Getting this order wrong makes you a completely whitewashed tomb to the point that you can't tell the difference or not. A pretty looking grave that's full of unclean death inside. Deceptively beautiful, yet misleading. Because what you do is you mislead the unaware into getting close. And when they do, what happens? You overflow in uncleanness and they become unclean too. And I think... We, we combine these two points. We start to get at Jesus's message. You see, neglecting inward transformation in favor of outward puritanical religion costs us the purpose of, re, of spirituality. And even more dangerously, it creates hidden danger for others drawn by the false image of purity that we project. And when I think about this, I think it hits home when I sit with the concept of character defects. If you don't know what this term means, character defects are broken attitudes, thoughts, behaviors, or worldviews that get in the way of connecting fully with God, ourselves, or others. 
patterns that often begin with wounds that we coped with through some defect of character. We were abandoned, so we learned to leave relationships first or become hyper-independent. We don't need anybody. We were hurt by someone we trusted, so we learned to numb, control, get angry, see everything as dangerous when it comes into contact with us. We were told we weren't good enough, so we learned to blame ourselves for everything. We all have these. And what makes them interesting is that they're incredibly hard to change. That's because they got us at some point in our life through past hardships and they became intertwined with who we think we are. Does anyone find themselves saying, I'm an angry person rather than a person who gets angry? I'm an anxious person rather than a person who has anxiety. I'm a controlling person, not a person who struggles with control. You see how they get intertwined with our identity. This is what makes character defects so hard to change. And the problem is that though they helped us in the past, in the present, they separate us from reality. Has anyone had thoughts or behavior patterns that pop up even when it's uncalled for in the moment? You get angry for no reason. You get entrenched in your pride for no reason. Am I the only one? You get afraid for no reason. Am I preaching yet? <laughs> Ever seen those patterns separate you from God, yourself, or others? in a moment. Jesus says that to become whole, we must let God heal this internal brokenness. But here's the thing, we don't want to, do we? We often would do anything to avoid healing these parts of ourselves. We'd have to look at our wounds. We'd have to look at how these character defects have led us to cause wounds. We'd have to admit we need help. And y'all, we just don't wanna do that. So what do we do instead? Well, I think it's more comfortable believing that changing everything and everyone else will fix us. I think it's more comfortable to use religion to clean superficial areas, but never let it touch our deepest defects of character. I think we create this religion that says we can clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is off limits because that's who I am. And we miss kingdom healing where we need it most. And here's the worst part, that superficial work actually becomes worse than doing nothing at all because we look safe on the outside until people get close, poke that wound and the niceties give way to judgment, anger, gossip, all those things that have broken our world. And they overflow onto that unsuspecting person, do they not? Jesus says that that needs to be healed first before anything outside of us because that's what truly separates us from ourselves, others, and our God. It's like my injury. I wasn't miserable because I got hurt. I was miserable because I wasn't getting what I wanted, when I wanted it, how I wanted it right now. I was miserable because I coped with fear of fragility and inadequacy through pride. I was miserable because I coped with pain through getting angry and puffing out my chest. I was miserable because I had never dealt with this before I went out there and contacted other people. And like all brokenness, I only got better when that internal junk healed. Not when my ankle fully went back to the way it was. That never happened, y'all. That stuff's permanent. No, no. It was rather when I faced my wounds, 
what I had used to hide them. Accepting that to become whole, I needed to let God take those defects of character, pride, anger, self-centeredness, and I needed to let him heal what mattered most, which only happened when I accepted that life is an inside job. When I let God clean the inside of the cup and empty out my tombs. And I wanna close by just getting practical. How do we clean the dish? How do we heal our character defects? And I've actually found that this process is simple, but it's never easy. I think first we have to identify them. Ask yourself, what has gotten in the way of connecting fully with God, myself, and others? What has helped me survive in this world, but it's also left me broken? And y'all, you don't need to be ashamed. We all have them. Welcome to the human race, if you do. You see, self-righteousness and self-loathing are just two sides of the same coin. They're both delusions with the same effect, thinking you're perfect or you're the worst. You either don't wash the bowl because you think you don't have to, or you don't wash the bowl because you think it can't be cleaned. In both cases, what happens? You don't change. So don't be ashamed. Start by accepting that they're there, that it's okay, that you're a human being, and then accept that you have a God that can heal them. And then you just name them. You may, you may know yours immediately. Anxiety, control, self-centeredness, self-pity. But for those that don't, I recommend two starting points. First, ask someone close that you trust. You probably think that your character defects are hidden, but they are not. I got bad news, y'all. Others know it well before you do most of the time. <laughs> I remember when I told someone for the first time, I have anger issues. I thought it was like the big reveal in the movie and they were like, duh. <laughs> Ask somebody. Second, if you need a starting place, start with pride, self-centeredness, and fear. I have found that these three are the core ones, the most foundational. You may know what they are, but look for patterns. Look for patterns in your relationships your habitual behaviors, your immediate thoughts during stress. Get simple, name the theme, look for the forest, not the trees. Second, tell someone, a counselor, therapist, a mentor, a sponsor, someone wise who's walked the path of healing before. Saying them out loud helps so much if you've ever done this before. Just say it and also admit that you need help. You need other people, you need different perspectives, because I'm gonna be honest with y'all, if you could have healed these on your own, you would have by now, would you not? We need someone else. Third, own them. You can't surrender what you do not own. That is a fact of life. Remove circumstances, remove blaming other people, focus only on what you can control, your response, your side of the street. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about abuse here. There are things done to us in our life that we have no ownership over. And those are complex. And I highly recommend going to a therapist to work through the implications of those events. However, what I am talking about today is the majority of cases where if we are honest, we know that we help develop these, feed them and make them grow. How has your internal world produced habitual broken responses? What's that cost you? How has it cost others? Name them, tell them, own them. Fourth, and this is the hardest part, give them to God. And I usually hate things like this because it sounds too simple. But in this case, it kind of is. You see, we can know that they're broken, but letting them go is so hard because they helped us limp along for years. 
They helped us survive and releasing them hurts, but y'all, we need to, if we're gonna heal. And in this, Jesus offers grace. We do not earn his love or forgiveness. We do not earn his care. We do not earn his invitation to be healed. That is given, it is never earned. So what you do is you lay them down knowing fully that he wants to heal you of them like he has tried to heal our world. Humbly ask him to take it each day, but prepare yourself to actually let it go. If you don't know where to start, I pray the seventh step prayer from the 12 steps every morning. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me the strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. It's a powerful prayer. And then I just name each one, anger, self-centeredness, pride, judgmentalism. Finally, commit to practicing their opposite. It was obvious but profound when I realized that my character defects have opposites. I had just never thought of that before. Selfishness, selflessness. Anger, peace. Control, surrender, judgmentalism, acceptance. Every day, name its opposite and then commit to practicing it in your daily affairs. Some days you'll do great. Some days you'll slip. Transformation in the deepest parts of us takes a lifetime. It's okay. God loves you. But assess at the end of your day, where did I do better at responding to a situation without judging a person? Where did I do better at not being afraid today? And then recommit to doing better tomorrow. That's it. This is what it means for me to fast from our character defects, to embrace kingdom integrity, letting God clean the bowl and empty the tomb because there's true lasting healing available. I don't know where you need to hear that. Maybe you've made a mess of your life and you're like, amen, Pastor Mike. Or maybe you're just tired of hurting yourself and other people in silly ways. Maybe you just need to hear that there's more. You're just tired, that there's a true self available that you can become. Maybe you just want to give away something better than you've been given in this life. Look at the world. Does it need more pride, fear, self-centeredness, and judgmentalism? Does it need its opposite? I know my answer. And I know I wanna be someone who brings something better into this world that God loves. That's the invitation. That's what I want to open my eyes to and find new life within this Easter. Amen. Amen.